Слава Україні! Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tochini Weekly. We are a broadcast that uh, does our best to bring you uh, expert analysis on the Russian invasion of Ukraine that is currently going on. Please, if you could, follow our main account for updates on all of our content. We do broadcast weekly at this time, of course, but we also have uh, other things that we do, such as our recent interview that ended with uh, Andras Toth Sifra, which was uh, great. And uh, if you would like to hear a recording of this broadcast or all of our other content, including that interview, please do check us out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, we're available on both. And uh, subscribe there for updates uh, for all of our content. If you do have any questions for our panel, please do DM the main account. And uh, if time permits, we will uh, do our best to open it up for uh, questions from the audience. We do have an excellent panel this week. First, we will be discussing the anniversary of the Chernobyl disaster, followed by a, a detailed discussion of Ukraine's air defense capabilities. And lastly, we will be discussing Russian disinformation and misinformation efforts. Uh, so uh, without further delay, we'll go to our first segment, uh, and I'll turn it over to uh, Jonathan and Yaroslav. Jonathan. Thank you, Joseph. Yes, this week we've seen another turn in the wheels of justice for Ukrainians deported people as the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe uh, recognized the deportation of Ukrainians to the territory of the current Russian Federation as genocide. I thought that whilst the ICC and others continue their uh, their work to bring justice to Ukrainians, it's important to underscore that Ukrainian voices are always paramount to the work their allies do. And in a week in which we've also seen the anniversary of an event in which uh, I think it's fair to say Ukrainians had to endure without a great deal of support from their allies and friends in the West, um, simply because they were unable to at the time. Um, that event, of course, is the Chernobyl disaster. And uh, for this, we are very lucky to be joined by Yaroslav, who is a Ukrainian and who is going to talk about his family's experience of Chernobyl 37 years ago this week. Welcome, Yaroslav. It's great to speak to you again. Yes, thank you. Thank you for inviting me, guys, to touch the weekly. It would be a pleasure to talk about this uh, important topic, especially after the anniversary of Chernobyl. Thank you. You're most welcome. Um, Yaroslav, um, when the explosion at Reactor 4 at Chernobyl occurred, where was your family living? Yeah, uh, my family was uh, living in uh, Kamelnitsk region, so basically we are talking about the village area. So, uh, yeah, basically uh, all my family, they have uh, roots from this region, Khmelnytsky Oblast, and of course the information about the uh, about this tragedy, tragedy, like they they didn't know about this immediately. It took some time, and uh, I believe it was spread a little bit faster among the uh, 
citizens of Kiev and Kiev regions. But unfortunately, uh, I think my family could uh, could uh, realize the, the the influence of this a little bit later. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. When Chernobyl happened, we saw in the West, we saw on TV news programs, uh, that particular program that was broadcast on Ukrainian TV. And our audience can find a still image from this in the nest. And our, our viewers on Spotify can find it by looking at our tweets from today's broadcast. That news broadcast on the uh, 28th of April was a, a short 20-second announcement. Um, it was on the TV news program Vremier, and the announcer simply said, there has been an accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. No casualties. How did Ukrainians react to this news? I believe it was uh, accepted like as it was given uh, on the news. So uh, it was like really short notice about this this tragedy. It was not called tra tragedy, of course. It it was just some um, short information about that something happened. Uh, some kind of accident happened on the Chernobyl a nuclear power plant and the situation is of course under control and there is no um, no need to worry about this and I believe it was uh, accepted softly but of course it gave uh, it was like the background for a lot of uh, gossips yeah later um, it's fair to say, I mean, Ukrainians were not informed of the, the scale of the peril in which they and their families had been put in. Um, I mean, one of the characteristics of the Soviet empire, which we study in the West, is uh, things from Gordon Martel's book, who says that the, the Soviet regime saw politics through the lens of who are our enemies and those who uh, speak the truth to power, those who... Um, become informed about an event which is embarrassing and potentially destabilizing to the regime is, is seen uh, seen perhaps as an enemy. Why, why do you think an informed Ukrainian populace about a major catastrophe uh, in Ukraine was deemed as something which the USSR government deemed you as enemies for? Definitely, um, while speaking to my family members about these events, uh, they informed like that later when the topic was more widely uh, discussed, they uh, realized that the first information came from Sweden actually, and uh, it, it was it was terrible to understand that the authorities of the Soviet regime like they actually didn't give any kind of uh, direction how to actually exist in such uh, like in this area it, it's uh, they usually you know uh, now the attitudes of my family and many Ukrainians I believe uh, they uh, they understand it like the authorities were they discussed what information to give to their society uh, what information to give to the socialist countries 
and what to, what information to give to the United States, Britain, and other Western countries. So, uh, like, it cannot be like it could not be said later that there was no explosion. They needed to tell something. It was told a little bit, a little bit later, and they needed to provide something like uh, something like that, some information uh, and on uh, opinion of many people. It was decided to submit uh, like different kinds of truth. So, like some truth was both was given to the socialist countries. Some some kind of truth was given to United States and uh, Western countries. And of course, uh, there was it was considered as a lie because if you have a lot of kind of truth, people will uh, understand it as uh, a lie. So, uh, of course, it. To undermine the trust of the population and the trust of the citizens in the party and the authorities of the Soviet Union, in my opinion, yeah. Yes, well, well said. I think you, um, the precursor to that news announcement uh, was the, um, what was indeed Sweden um, picking up traces of nuclear material or higher radi radiation levels from the soles of shoes worn by a radiological safety engineer at a nuclear power plant in Sweden. So two two days afterwards, uh, on the 28th of April, with the explosion being on Saturday the 26th, for, for two days, Ukrainians were, uh, in in the main, unaware of the, uh, the higher radiation levels that were spreading throughout their country and of the, the great peril that they were being placed in. Did this... Um, what kind of impact did the absence of information uh, have on public attitudes towards the Soviet authorities? As as we know, like Gorbachev, uh, actually the leader of the USSR, only appeared on the central television on May 13th. So we can actually, it was like 18 days after this happened and uh, he was trying to uh, officially acknowledged the tragedy, uh, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant somehow. And for many people, uh, after they heard this, they realized that uh, actually some, some time has already passed after this happened. So all this time they were uh, influenced by this. Uh, and for many Ukrainians, Chernobyl was some sort of boost. I would say to understand that the system cannot be trusted and the leaders uh, of the states, they actually uh, do not care about people. Uh, also, through many years, people were dissatisfied with the Soviet regime uh, and uh, actually it was this uh, nuclear disaster and its consequences and uh, unsuccessful attempts of the leadership to maybe uh, downplay the scale of the tragedy. Uh, it's that that of course influenced people, people's uh, politically uh, political activity. So uh, it, it, in the end, I believe it led to even some uh, eco protests and uh, some some. Uh, and it actually, it's changed to uh, some political activism later. That's really interesting. Thank you, Yaroslav, because we've seen throughout 2022 and since the start of the initial invasion in 2014, you've seen the, we've seen consistent disinformation 
uh, a campaign of this launched by the Kremlin against Ukraine. And we've seen attempts to silence journalists, uh, attempts that, that go right up to the murder this week of another Ukrainian journalist, Bogdan Bitikin Kerson uh, Oblast, whilst working for an Italian media outlet, I should note. Now, given the re repressive reputation of the then Soviet authorities, how careful did Ukrainian people have to be in terms of who they talked to about Chernobyl? Yeah, I believe uh, there was uh, there there were a lot of archives published since I believe 2019 till 2021, and mostly those are the documents from the Ukrainian representatives of KGB, and there are really a lot of uh, interesting information there. There was information about the crew of American CBS channel that worked in Kiev, and actually they arrived in Kiev on May. Like, I believe it was a two-day trip for them. And there was the group movement of these journalists. They were trying to to do some kind of interview with the locals, maybe ask some questions. And uh, we actually know from these archives that uh, some KGB agents were like acted that, that as they are ordinary passers-by or maybe station employees to give the information, uh, to, to give the needed uh, information, the information that was needed by Soviet authorities. So basically, yeah, it's it shows the attitudes of the leadership and it shows that they, they did a lot of things to, to actually uh, do not get this information disclosed uh, to, uh, to the civilized wor world, I would say. <laughs> and so, there were also a lot of um, uh, citizens of other countries in Kiev. There were a lot of tourists. Uh, we know that uh, actually the, there were a lot of representatives from uh, different countries, like for example, from Egypt, Nigeria, India, and Iraq. And they also had a lack of information about this and their government would uh, decided to maybe uh, uh, recall their citizens lived in Kiev and in Minsk. That's why it, it, it shows us the picture that the population was not informed about the consequences or about the influence that they that this uh, events or tragedy can uh, have on their health, of course. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Given the dearth of wealth, welfare provided, this may seem like a slightly banal question given, given what you've just said. I'd like to ask you about what action the, the Soviet authorities took to protect public health following this uh, major environmental and public health catastrophe. Um, in, in my small part of the world, we slaughtered thousands of Welsh sheep um, because of increased radiation levels. Um, there, was, uh, there, there were bans put out by the ECC at the time on the export of food products from certain places, Eastern Europe in particular, due to these raised radiation levels. But in Ukraine itself, what changes to food and drink occurred following the disaster? As far as we know, like, uh, I was actually only uh, talking about this with my family members, there were actually no measures uh, taken. Been the food and the drinks, 
there was some kind of uh, like you know everyone acted the same uh, and not uh, like there are some facts of corruption maybe because some people would like bring in uh, some products from the uh, some areas where radio radioactive uh, like where there was the high level of radioactivity and they were selling them uh, on the like actually I do not have evidence of uh, some strict measures that were made immediately or maybe it, maybe it was made later because uh, everyone knew about this uh, later but after like I believe before the uh, the official appear of appearance of the of Gorbachev on uh, May 15th there was no uh, specific actions uh, done by the government I believe later people just uh, were doing this by themselves they were trying to maybe clean some foods like um, extremely uh, they were I would say it was a shock for many of them uh, and they were trying to act on their own so basically it was people uh, doing their own business and the government's just trying to be to like to do but also to do something but not with the people mostly with this uh, with this uh, accident on Chernobyl it was quite long until they um, until they it was the issue was Chernobyl was uh, resolved and, and actually took like took like 36 hours for them to to evacuate the people from there uh, also it it was it it has it had their own uh, like the government the authorities they have their own business but regarding the food and drinks uh, maybe there are some archives where they uh, there is like comments about vodka uh, but I believe I saw only two of that two of such cases when people like were so uh, so shocked that they thought that vodka maybe will cure any kind of diseases connected with the nuclear uh, catastrophe. Gosh, I I find it quite quite staggering that um, yeah changes to food and drink they didn't occur because they were part of this concealment. Did this apply to to working practices too? I mean, were some people asked to stay indoors and not work? I'm guessing that due to the, the delay in the public being told that the that Chernobyl had happened, that they were told to go to work as normal. As we know, uh, uh, it was definitely not done. Maybe uh, only for the citizens uh, like, that were like uh, evacuated there. Maybe they were given some rules uh, to follow, but for the majority of the population, in Ukraine there were not some strict uh, advices or some directions that could help uh, them to to prevent the influence of the uh, radioactive elements as we know uh, after like f five days after like on the main May of uh, on the first of May it was the Labor's Day and we had the full Khrushchev streets, uh, like full of people, full of uh, Kiev and uh, Kiev citizens and citizens from suburbs, 
of Kiev, and it was really informational blackout for the majority of them. And uh, if we try to think logically, I believe they uh, the government just wanted to have all their all, all the most important uh, uh, to have the most important ideological holidays in the Soviet Union to be taken at the first place, like it was the first of May. Then it was uh, also some competitions cycling competitions on the 6th of May. Then there was, of course, uh, the Victory Day. No one could miss these this ideological holidays. So, And only on the 14th of uh, May we have this official uh, appeal from uh, Gorbachev. So, yeah. Despite the fact that, uh, that the wind could draw the radioactive clouds, towards Kiev, the party, the party state uh, leadership in Kremlin, uh, in any case, decided to organize this uh, event. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. The historical meteor- meteorological um, data shows that by the first, by the first of May, Thursday, the first of May, um, the wind had changed direction and was blowing straight into the direction of the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. Yet, despite this, um, the Soviet authorities encouraged everybody to go to the annual May Day parades. Um, and the same was true in, in Belarus and Minsk, and they emphasized that everything was normal. But at the same time, we know that Soviet bureaucrats removed their children from Kiev um, and, uh, and whisked them away to, uh, to, to another part of the country. So can you describe in your community what that May Day parade was like. How many people were there? Yeah, uh, actually, we're talking about the 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 number of people. I believe it, it was like like one uh, one hundred thousand people there uh, because in Kiev the parade was one of the biggest, of course, as the as in uh, the biggest city, the capital there, and so. There were people uh, also from uh, the Kiev Oblast, uh, not only from Kiev, and I think uh, it was supposed to become uh, like some kind of marker for the world or community that the situation is under control, that people are safe and feel protected, and uh, I think that uh, it was just spreading this false information about the uh, like. Uh, you know, as it happens now in Russia, it, it was the same in the Soviet Union. That uh, they usually uh, have this narrative that Western media they are spreading false information about the destruction or maybe some victims, and uh, it actually uh, it actually became a part of this propaganda war in the Soviet uh, Union. But you see, like you can find these photos of the these shots of smiling, uh, like smile, smiling key of people walking through the city center, and I think they just wanted to broadcast the message to everyone that the that everything is fine, that party co- controls the situation, and all your accusations that was done previously. Uh, or still uh, widespread in the Western media, they are false. Uh, but uh, at the same time, right now, uh, 
these pictures from newspapers, uh, I think, is the testimony of the crime of the Soviet authorities uh, against the people. So we see that it's uh, unbelievable that there were a lot of people, and we have some facts that's uh, actually on the, I believe, on the 3rd of May. After these events, we had like uh, nearly 1,000 patients with symptoms of radiation damage uh, hospitalized in Ukraine. Uh, on the 4th of May, there was like 1,500, including children, like 330 children. And later, the radiology departments of Kyiv hospitals became full. So. Uh, and patients with this uh, uh, diagnosis uh, like began to be accepted outside the city. But uh, firstly, uh, firstly, uh, like this uh, radiation disease uh, was described by doctors to their patients maybe as the vegetative vascular dystonia. So it was it was shocking to know these facts uh, years later after these events. Yeah, thank you, Yaroslav. The the number of people who were who had moved from the latency period and into manifest um, stage three um, radiation uh, symptoms of radiation sickness, we know from this side by by this point was uh, was significant. You mentioned the efforts to conceal the tragedy, but of course, with radiation sickness, there is only so much one can conceal. Who was the first to conceal the signs of radiation sickness amongst Ukrainians? Of course, it was uh, the doctors, because after the, these uh, events, of course, after the parade uh, on the 1st of May, uh, we had like a lot of, uh, no. like a lot of people were feeling not okay. Uh, actually, there some some of the uh, some of people described. Uh, even the parade on the 1st of May, like they feel something is happening, uh, like they, they they have some bad feeling in their throat. Maybe it's a little bit harder to breathe than usual. And during the next days, the doctors were the, the people who actually uh, understood what happens. And But actually, they, they had also some rules. They did not tell the truth immediately, as I told you. They could not tell the diagnosis immediately to the patients. They they had a lot of uh, people, but it, it is the fact that they were trying to hide to hide the real disease by calling it uh, some other diseases. Thank you, Yaroslav. Um, yeah. You don't have to answer this question if you don't want to. Um, so please say no if it's if it's uh, not comfortable with you. But can I ask you? Do you know anybody in your community who had their health quite obviously affected by Chernobyl and the aftermath? Uh, from my like close community of of friends, I do not um, know like some people, but of course the uh, the scale of this uh, tragedy brought us to number of six hundred thousand of liquidators that were participating uh, in these events. And of course, usually when uh, I remember when I was uh, I was going to enter the university, there was like this, the government has a special quote for the 
children uh, of the liquidators and of course some uh, some special uh, compensation for people who who were liquidators or some benefits are provided by the government as a rule but yeah i think people maybe do not talk that much about this with one another they just know the fact that they that they know the facts about this tragedy uh, they know that this is the is tragedy in their memories like forever some dark page of uh, ukrainian history but yeah if you ask people i believe they would talk to you but um, i do not have like close friends or relatives that were um, directly connected to the to the catastrophe uh, on chernobyl i very much appreciate you you're telling about your stuff thank you i've got a couple more questions for you uh before we move on to questions from the audience um my first question is about the invasion of last year with it being such an obvious dangerous site to go to chernobyl why do you think the russians sent their own soldiers there i think that's mostly for russians for their governments it was some kind of um, blackmailing maybe based on tragedy or trauma for ukrainians so um yeah i think also that not every each and every soldier is aware about this that much uh, i think they do not have uh, some like they, they do not know maybe the some crazy facts about chernobyl and how uh, it can affect uh, like uh, their health but i think it was just uh the tool for putin maybe for as i told like uh, maybe some um to bring again some thrilling feelings for ukrainian because you know when you hear about chernobyl in the news once more especially for people who all like uh, participated in uh, as the liquidators there or was or were affected by this uh tragedy it sounds uh, terrible for them and i think it's some kind of psychological blackmailing based on trauma yeah yeah i mean the yeah that certainly makes sense thank you yaroslav my last question for you is this in in your opinion as a ukrainian how has chernobyl shaped the ukrainian identity of the modern era yeah, I think uh, that before the accident, you know, the, the Chernobyl was one of the symbols of the economic power of the Soviet Union. And after this, it became a symbol of uh, leadership disregard uh, for the safety and health of its own population. And uh, of course, I think that uh, events that we had later uh, after Chernobyl, it shaped uh, the population's opinion about the future of Ukraine because uh, the majority of Ukrainians understood that it is better to have their own country in order to decide if you want to build some nuclear power stations or not to build. They needed to have their own voice because they felt like the the main the main authority in Kremlin, like they just. Uh, 
let this happen and Ukrainians needed to do everything their own. They needed to fix their uh, these issues on their own. And among those 600 and 600,000 liquidators, liquidators, there was like uh, more than nearly 400, 400,000 from Ukraine. So we understood that it was mostly the tragedy of the Ukrainian people and influence on uh, Ukrainian territory. Of course, uh, like a few years later, we had this uh, eco-protests uh, in Ukraine. These eco-protests, uh, they uh, grew up into some political uh, political powers later. And I think it's there were some political powers like Green World, World or the Union of Chernobyl that could be uh, some... Uh, that actually became some uh, influential political force later. And so we had like, I believe in autumn uh, of 88, there was the huge uh, meeting you know, of eco uh, activists and such, such organizations. Uh, and it was quite successful because uh, there were a lot of interesting points and uh, speeches regarding the Ukrainian independence and uh, uh, a lot of different uh, like uh, posters with symbolic phrases that are right now in the history. Uh, you can find everything in the internet, like all these photos. Uh, they shaped the Ukrainian, uh, like the Ukraine, the direction of Ukrainians, uh, and it helped. I believe it was one of the one of the crucial points to to destroy the Soviet Union in the end. Yeah. Thank you. Um, resilience, an example, which uh, which is quite striking. Thank you, Yaroslav. We've got a couple of questions from the audience, and I can see that um, we've got a couple of Ukrainians in the audience. Um, so I'd like to just make a quick shout out to um, people like Basil, if you'd like to come up and feel comfortable about sharing uh, your experience or someone you know's experience with the Chernobyl. You're most welcome, sir. But uh, I can see Joseph's got his hand up. So, uh, Joseph, please go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. You touched on this a little bit, Yaroslav, but I was just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more. I guess looking at some of the attitudes towards nuclear energy that we kind of see on display since uh, all this has been going on, what, what would you say if, is kind of the general attitude about nuclear energy and this topic? Do you think that the full-scale invasion has had any kind of broad effect on on that idea in terms of like Ukraine's future as a country and 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 so forth. Yes, yes, as I told you there was the huge movement of the eco uh activists uh after this event so we had as you know we had a lot of like a few more power plants for example the Zaporizhia power plants uh as far as I know there was a lot of protests against building it or against uh, uh, like expanding the the number of uh, reactors there. The same was in uh, Kmelnytsk region where where I'm living. So we had some some kind of uh, yeah protests there. There were a lot of uh, people involved in this, uh, interested people. Uh, and yeah, we had the movements uh, based on this event, but generally uh, right now, I believe everything was under control, and people could actually, if uh, if they uh, disagree with something or they have some uh, 
some kind of solutions regarding the uh, the nuclear power plant industry in Ukraine. That they they could always uh, give their opinion about this by signing the petition directly to the president or offering something or maybe uh, gathering some peaceful protests uh, as it was many times before. Yeah. Thank you, Yaroslav. Um, Asso, welcome up. Hello, everybody. Uh, I want to add something about this uh, tragedy, about uh, what uh, you asked for. First of all, I want to say that you have to understand one uh, simple truth, one simple reality. Soviet Union, Soviet power, it's totalism, totalitarianism power, it's autocratic power, it's not democratic power. For them, people is nothing, absolutely is nothing. And that is why uh, they don't say truth, uh, because they don't want uh, people to know truth because uh, they uh, make their decision by uh, themselves. They don't need any consultants, any other who say sorry, but it's uh, terrible. It's uh, make some uh, terrible things for people. We should say them and they should make uh, their steps. No, it's not important. People for them, it's not important. Russia is the same. People for Russia, Russian people for Russia is not important for them at all. It's a tragedy. And about uh, uh, nuclear energy in Ukraine. Uh, yes, we have disputes, but uh, I think uh, we are not going to close our nuclear stations. But we have plans to, uh, not we, uh, government have plans to build more, not station to add some reactors to some stations in Ukraine. This plan was before 2022. That's really interesting. Thank you. So, sorry, Yaroslav, if you'd like to follow up on that. Oh, thank you. Maybe someone else has some questions. Thank you. Uh, we are going to be, um, time has unfortunately um, moved swiftly on, but uh, just when I've got both of you up here, um, uh, it's, I'd like to thank you both all coming up and contributing on this on this week which marks the 37 year uh years since um since the chernobyl disaster um how how do you see ukraine's example to the world going forward i think it was you know like if uh, actually this tragedy has had some impact uh, as well on the Western culture, I think, because we, we knew, like, uh, after these uh, archives and all these uh, documents that we have, that actually the Western society was the first to, uh, their reaction was the first, uh, based on the events that happened. And uh, I think people there, uh, they, they had this, uh, uh, like, this period the mo motivation to uh to move forward uh, like and solve some uh, problems regarding this together with the government some good ideas it could be an example because we saw it uh, in ukraine after these events and definitely it could be some kind of guide how to act you should have it's good that the western uh, societies have, uh, they have this a lot of eco-activists, a lot of uh, different movements. 
it shows the diversity uh, it shows the real tools for building the democracy in inside countries and yeah i think uh, it could be a good conclusion here thank you very much indeed yaroslav thank you vassal pleasure to have you both here on that note i'm very happy to say that so we've been joined by john rich and charles so um welcome up over to you yeah thank you very much yes yeah, so hello everyone so for our military segment today we're going to be looking at uh, the status of ukrainian air defense and some of the news in terms of the the air war and the air defense side of the conflict looking over the past week in terms of the front lines um like everyone around the world is, is sort of waiting for an offensive to begin there have been media blackouts from the ukrainian side some of the information that used to be more readily available in the Yosin community uh, is becoming more difficult to get. These are all good signs, of course, for ongoing shaping operations, which we've talked about in previous weeks. We've got John Ridge today and to discuss about air defense. So, John, let's jump right into it. The Ever since the leaks, I think, at least in most media outlets, the status of Ukrainian air defense has been a major topic of concern. This week, we saw more uh, Russian strikes against civilian targets. What do we know about the current status of Ukrainian air defense forces? Right. Going into this, if we want to back up and look at what our understanding was prior to the disclosure uh, of those various classified documents, the public open source estimates from a variety of sources, um, uh, some particularly some Ukrainian aviation folks that were, or I should say some Ukrainian open source intelligence folks that were focusing on Russian and Ukrainian aviation alike, as well as ground-based air defenses. They had concluded that the current expenditure rate of Ukrainian surface-to-air missiles was plainly just not sustainable in the long term, um, simply because there is not very many avenues to secure potential replacements. Um, those estimates indicated that Ukraine had likely expended about 50% of their inventory of their interceptor inventory by say November, December of uh, last year of 2022 with projected zero dates of sometime around June, July of this year. What these leaks revealed, um, they have a, a rather detailed breakdown of the state of Ukraine's integrated air defense network as of, I believe, March 1st. They reveal that those estimates were perhaps a little bit optimistic and that the S-300P systems, which are Ukraine's primary long-range air defense system that they would exhaust, given the then current expenditure rate and the then uh, number of interceptors and in inventory that they would run out sometime in early to mid-May, the situation with Buks, which was, which is a um, medium-range surface-to-air missile system, was somewhat more dire with a projected uh, zero date of sometime in early to mid-April. And it recommended several strategies that Ukraine could potentially implement to ration their usage of those systems and prioritize certain targets to ensure that existing inventories could be stretched out uh, as long as possible. Um, so th there is really some significant challenges going uh, going forward in terms of keeping Ukraine's existing systems operable and supplied with munitions, 
as well as how we're going to move forward to supplement or replace those systems with Western or NATO systems such as Patriot, NASAMS, RSTSL, SAMPT, et cetera, or, you know, fixed wing aircraft. Uh, thanks a lot. And I know that, that especially the NASAMs and the Patriots are very, very limited in number, but there was an announcement earlier, and I, I saw a tweet from, from you about it, looking at something that the U.S. will be providing, and this is called the IBCS. Can you help us understand what that is, why it's important? How does this augment uh, air defense capability in light of the, the current needs? This wasn't I guess explicitly announced by the Department of Defense, but some um, people uncovered this line item in a uh, Pentagon budget realignment document, budget realignment um, being the process through which the Pentagon takes appropriations meant for certain specific items and attempts to more or less request permission from Congress to spend that money on another item in the budget. They were seeking to replace a IVCS, which is the Integrated Air and Missile Defense Battle Command System that they had supplied to Ukraine. So for, for those unfamiliar with this, IBCS is really what it is. It's a C2 command and control software suite and associated physical infrastructure. So an EOC, an engagement operations center, some power generation equipment and some communications equipment. And the whole idea for behind IBCS is to serve as the primary command and control network in a hub for a distributed integrated air defense system. So the idea behind it was really to develop this, this open architecture system where you can really integrate any collection of sensors, such as mainly radars, for example, and effectors such as surface-to-air missiles that you want to it um, and deploy them really however you want via the use of uh, what are known as IFCN relays, Integrated Fire Control Network uh, relays. So the, the net effect of this, to just put it simply, is to, whereas normally you might have, for example, say, 10 separate discrete um, you know, batteries of a certain surface-to-air missile system, each with their own, um, uh, fire direction center, command post, you know, different terms are used, you know, each with its own radar and launchers, and those are each discrete systems. And then you may have some command and control system that's designed to enable them to pass data to one another. What IBCS essentially does is it completely bypasses the organic command and control infrastructure for what would normally be these discrete individual batteries or systems and allows you to take individual uh, effectors, so surface-to-air missile launchers, anti-aircraft guns, etc., and individual sensors, again, mainly radars, and you could potentially integrate some other stuff, and individually connect them to IBCS and deploy them independently of one another, both physically in terms of command and control. So that allows you to potentially cover much, much larger areas geographically, with these systems than you could, you know, if they're each like you know, discrete um, batteries or uh, battalions are not necessarily communicating with one another or have all their assets clustered in a fairly small geographic location. That sounds very interesting. And, and with this open architecture concept, so does that mean then that 
you know, with a system, with this system, they would be able to have, you know, a full picture and integration, both with Soviet legacy equipment, such as S-300s or books, as well as things like Patriots and NASAMs? For the Western systems, yes, it's definitely a very large step in that direction um, in terms of integrating, for example, Patriot, SAMPT, NASAMs, IRSTSL, Crotal, all the various other systems that have been delivered. This is a very big step towards essentially integrating them into a single large national integrated air defense network. Potentially, this can be done with the Soviet systems as well, although it's a lot more technically challenging given a the age of the system and the onboard electronics you know an s300 produced or manufactured in the 1980s is going to be a lot more difficult to integrate than say a patriot that you know has electronics from 10 years ago or an asams with electronics from five years ago they're a very large technical challenge but if you were to, if you wanted to do that integration, IBCS is probably the best way to go about doing it. And I should probably also mention the whole, the, the way that the system works in terms of integrating new components is IBCS has a, what's known as a B kit. It's a standardized interface that either sensors or effectors can connect to. And so because it's open architecture, the idea is that anybody, you know, that has a given radar, given, you know, SAM, a given SAM launcher that they want to integrate with IBCS, what they can do is because that B kit is standardized and each IFC in each of those relays has a B kit, and I believe the engagement operations center does as well, um, anybody that wants to integrate new components can develop a custom A kit, as it's called, those are then physically integrated with whatever launchers, radars, et cetera, that they want to integrate. And then that A kit communicates with the B kit and en enables that um, those components to be plugged into the overall IBCS. Okay, very well. And, but, you know, I have to ask the difficult question. So, I mean, what when we talk about the future here, what kind of horizon timeline are we looking at for a system like this to be? deployed and trained is are we talking in a number of years are we talking in a number of months what what are we looking at here so training on ibcs i can't imagine that it would take overly long i mean just for for reference the the training course on patriot is about 16 weeks normally i believe the ukrainian s300 operators that were brought over to fort sill to train on patriot they completed the course and i want to say either nine or ten weeks so I would imagine it would probably take maybe two to three months to complete the training for IBCS. What's probably going to be more time consuming is developing those A kits for, say, NASAMs, for RSTSL, and the various other systems and physically integrating those components with IBCS that will probably be more time consuming. On the bright side, Patriot, NASAMs, and RSTSL in particular already have a pretty significant degree of interoperability so i can't imagine it would take overly long but once you start talking about say book s300p or s300v then things the timeline becomes very unclear potentially quite significant okay thank you i, I want to come back to kind of the short term because we're looking at an upcoming offensive and of course there are questions about can the ukrainians maintain at least contested airspace over the front lines, um, not to mention 
ongoing civil defense from long-range attacks. You know, there was a report that came out recently from the um, Center for Strategic and International Studies. And I know that you looked at this report and and some of the issues were, were with some of the data. Maybe just help me understand, like, what did what did you see in that report with the CIS, and what is your what are your questions about it? Oh, right. So the C uh, the CSIS report on uh, you know and the future trajectory of Ukraine's air defense network. Myself and um, a friend of mine who follows Ukrainian aviation, we both took a look at it. There were some pretty glaring factual errors and basically all of the data it used. Um, there were just very weird numbers, just incorrect numbers for the number of uh, surface air missile systems and other air defense assets that Ukraine started the invasion with, the number that had been lost, the number of Western systems pledged, just factual errors all over the place. But my general conclusion was that it was just overly optimistic in terms of Ukraine will continue for next several months, or next couple months at least, to be able to deny the the VKS, the Russian uh, Air Force, the ability to effectively operate on the front line. But the two points to consider there are that's going to come at a cost. You know, if the goal is to preserve uh, surface air missile inventory, that's going to mean taking steps like simply not protecting Ukrainian population centers from Russian cruise missile strikes with sounds, you know, leaving that to things like anti-aircraft guns, which are, you know, quite a bit less effective in that role, um, not engaging the Shaheds, and again, just leaving those to be dealt with anti-aircraft guns in the rear, which is not an ideal solution, and really just prioritizing engaging Russian fixed and rotary wing aviation, so fighters and helicopters with their surface-to-air missiles. Decisions like that will need to be made in order to to string out the life of this inventory. At the same time, even if that is done, we're still going to get into a situation where that inventory will be continuously decreasing, even if we can, you know, stretch it out for three to four more months, and the the whole network will become just continually less effective if steps are not taken to mitigate that. Yeah, thank you very much. I know we were talking in. The Ukrainians certainly have some difficult decisions that they need to make in terms of air defense with the the number of interceptors and the number of systems. We've seen a few kind of high-profile videos this week of Russian attacks on air defense systems, like Gepard's uh, radar, so on. When I go back and, and I read a CNA report uh, on the VKS, and it was talking about, kind of told the story of even going back to the initial invasion, they highlighted a couple major points, which was is that the Russian Air Force does not really have the great capability in terms of hitting targets that move. They don't have strong guided munitions from the air. They don't have the EWACs and tar- target identification systems that they need. And that one of the ways that the Ukrainian air defense remains so intact, not just because of the total number of S-300s that they had in stock, for example, was also because of their mobility. Is this something that can mitigate the effects, or are we really just looking at munitions here at at, at interceptors? So the the dynamics described in that CNA report, those have already been in play for the past you know, fourteen months. Is it now? 
the Russians do not seem to be able, well, and quite frankly, just in principle, it's probably going to be impossible for them to overcome the the deficits in training and command and control uh, infrastructure and procedures that they would need to carry out any sort of highly effective destruction of enemy air defenses campaign. Um, they also have a number of notable technical challenges, as the report references, a distinct shortage of guided munitions, lack of targeting pods, and other target identification systems on their aircraft, unlike you know many Western aircraft. All of those things are likely going to be insurmountable technical barriers, really the the only parameter here that is potentially trending in their favors again, Ukraine's, you know, depleting inventory of surface-to-air missiles. That's really the only thing they have going for them at this point. So, I mean, if I could kind of summarize this a bit, and please correct me where I'm going wrong here, John, but we know that the situation with the number of interceptors, with the number of rockets and, and, and systems for the Ukrainian air defense is critical. We know that they're going to have to make some difficult decisions, especially if they are, need to protect more areas in the in the front lines for an, an upcoming offensive. And so we we expect that, you know, with these difficult decisions, the air defense systems and capability is degraded. But on the other hand, we should not necessarily be expecting a complete collapse and and you know videos of you know. 30 strike aircraft on sorties going into Kyiv with that kind of level because the Russians also don't have that capability on the VKS. Am I oversimplifying things or where have I gone wrong? That's a fair assessment, at least for the immediate future for the next, you know, probably, you know, two, three, four months. Beyond that, depending on how critical the situation becomes, if appropriate steps are not taken to mitigate this then we could potentially be in a different situation. But at least for the for the immediate foreseeable future, that seems a, somewhat unlikely. Yeah, so let's th- think about those immediate steps that need to be taken. I, I think we were talking earlier, maybe a few weeks ago, talking about how especially the United States per- usually relies on air-to-air. This is why you know we don't have so many uh, air defense, surface-to-air missile systems as compared to how much we rely on interceptor aircraft to manage the skies. Besides the big one, the F-16s, what can be done? The first immediate steps would be to, yes, would be to secure what foreign stocks are available for these interceptors. So, for example, Bulgaria and Greece both operate S-300P on a diplomatic level, you know, efforts need to be made and it seems that they are being made to try and procure if not the systems themselves then their inventory of interceptors to be delivered to ukraine turkey operates s400 that could potentially be an avenue albeit a very challenging one to pursue and there's other operators kazakhstan which are perhaps less promising but they exist and it's a possibility i suppose so securing those foreign supplies would be the first step the second step would be taking a look at however many non-functional interceptors that Ukraine has in inventory. Given the age of them, it would not be surprising if Ukraine has quite a few in inventory that just don't work because age, perhaps not being properly maintained over you know the intervening 30 years since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, 
those could potentially be refurbished. The same is also potentially true of, you know, uh, stocks from for, uh, from other foreign operators of S300 or Book or, you know, OSA, Estrella, etc. You know, old non-functional missiles could be rebuilt and refurbished and delivered to Ukraine. Again, those are band-aid measures. They will not stop the bleeding, merely slow it. That just buys us more time to implement more sustainable solutions. One of those solutions which is already being implemented is, for example, integrating, doing an ad hoc integration of Western surface-to-air missiles on Ukrainian launchers and integrating those with Ukrainian radars. So the current example that we have of that would be integrating the Sea Sparrow missile with Ukrainian Buk systems to replace their usual interceptors, um, given the shortage. Okay, so no, no quick and easy uh, long-term solutions, let's say that. That, that's where things get tricky. So there is, we have to, we have to some extent a dichotomy between providing ground-based air defense assets and providing fixed-wing aircraft. I say it's a dichotomy. It's not really. Both are needed. What's really important to understand here is that even though Ukraine does have a very substantial uh, set of ground-based air defense assets, and even if we set aside the you know potential interceptor shortages, the current assets that they have are just not enough to defend all of their airspace reliably. So a very significant portion of Ukraine's overall integrated air defense system is contributed by what is effectively air-based air defense. So in other words, it's Ukrainian MiG-29s and Su-27s flying what are known as defensive counter-air uh, missions against Russian fixed and rotary wing assets to deny them the ability to operate behind Ukrainian lines or in very close proximity to Ukrainian lines. So they are all, so Ukrainian aviation is also a critical component of the overall air defense picture. So that's also in itself a larger issue because Ukrainian uh, Ukraine's fixed wing assets cannot be sustained indefinitely either just you know for example rebuilding and repairing the engine servicing the aircraft as a whole we don't have the infrastructure to do that the infrastructure to do that in ukraine is very limited it's also very limited in poland so that's going to be another separate issue that's going to have to be addressed so we're going to have to work out some combination of fixed wing assets that we want to provide as well as some number of ground bay of long range ground based air defense assets like Patriot that we want to provide. And we're going to have to do a calculation of, um, you know, where, where do we, as the, as the countries providing, where do we want to take our, do we want to potentially send aircraft that are going to cost us more to send and are going to be a longer lead time item? Um, you know, unsurprisingly, F-16s are much more extensive than Patriot, and they take longer than tra- uh, to train to operate as well, you know, both the pilots and the ground crew, and to sustain them. It's going to be much more expensive up front, much more expensive on a continuing basis, and get longer lead time. But the trade-off there is we have vastly more F-16s available than we do Patriot batteries. So the U.S. has 50 Patriot batteries um, spread out across, I believe, 16 Patriot battalions, they're one of the U.S. Army's most in-demand assets. We absolutely use all 50 of those batteries very extensively. We have 274 deployed at any given time, 33 in the continental United States. Um, they're, they're, they're very in-demand in terms of providing protection to our overseas bases. 
So if we send Patriot, you know, there's less lead time on those. They cost less to both upfront and to operate. But the downside is it's going to have a greater impact on our own readiness in the event of, you know, an armed conflict, you know, globally that we would need to respond to. So some political decisions are going to be made, you know, do we want to suffer, you know, greater cost and greater lead times in exchange for a lesser impact on our own readiness or do we want to prioritize um you know speed minimize cost and you know just accept the fact that we may degrade our own air defense capabilities you know for the next couple years by providing you know a greater number of patriot batteries and you know that that dichotomy is similar you know for other air defense assets i I just give that as a single example i thank you that that's very interesting i i just thinking of this and, and other measures, I think often this topic is mentioned in conjunction with long range ground to ground attack capability. You know, clearly the Russians use their S 300s daily for long range ground attack, not necessarily the most accurate, not necessarily perfectly designed for that. But items such as like the attack bombs for Ukraine has been on the agenda for, for many months. Recently, something came out of the United Kingdom MOD, some kind of request for proposal. Can you tell us a little bit about what the status there is on the long-range ground attack munitions? Uh, as you said, there is a very, very exciting request for proposals that came from the, the United Kingdom's Ministry of Defense the other day. Well, I said the other day. It was posted about a month ago, but I didn't notice it until just the other day. It is under a a larger program called the International Fund for Ukraine, which is a pool of funding currently at about half a billion British pounds uh, with funding contributed from the UK, Norway, Netherlands, Denmark, and Sweden, as well as uh, Iceland, Lithuania, excuse me. And this uh, pool of funding uh, is being used to provide equipment capabilities assets for ukraine they are currently in the uh, second round of the program so they held a the, the first round they held i believe a few months ago earlier at the beginning of this year to solicit bids to provide capabilities to ukraine across 11 different areas and so the whole idea is that really anybody any company that you know wants to can make a submission for one or more of these items and then the UK, you know, depending on, you know, which one is selected, will then procure those items using this pool of money on Ukraine's behalf and then deliver those assets or capabilities to Ukraine. So as part of the second round, there are, um, let's see here, there are currently three major categories. There is a category for mobility support, a category for air defense, which has some sub capabilities that um, companies can bid for. And then most interestingly, there is a long range strike capability uh, category. So they are soliciting proposals for uh, munitions, uh, specifically, quote, missiles or rockets with a range of 100 to 300 kilometers that are land, sea, or air launched and then have a payload or warhead mass of 20 to 490 kilograms, with the desirable capabilities being a low probability of intercept, uh, mission planning capability, assured navigation via global navigation satellite system i.e gps um, that is uh, resistant to electronic warfare so jamming and spoofing and that has uh, capabilities to improve its probability of penetrating uh, air defense zones 
and ideally has a technical readiness level of 8, which corresponds to the munition physically existing and having been tested. So more or less what this is, is the UK has issued a, uh, a proposal for companies to bid on more or less long-range strike munitions that they will procure on Ukraine's behalf. Uh, to phrase another way, the UK is rather directly simply stepping around the US's um, refusal to provide attackums thus far and directly more or less buy long-range munitions from the uh, from the global market on Ukraine's behalf. It's actually fantastic news. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether that changes any positions in Washington or how that is treated as it moves further along and, and hopefully it's it's quick. You know, before we, we have a few minutes for questions from the audience, if, if we like, but maybe just kind of my last question is, would these kind of long range strike capabilities, is this something that can be used to help alleviate the air defense issue? In other words, hitting systems further afield so that the rockets are never actually fired or the bombs are never actually dropped? Yeah, yes and no. On the one hand, the fundamental issue is that for the cruise missiles, at least, as well as the ballistic missiles, the actual ballistic missiles like Iskander-M, or I should say 9M7230 to be specific, the bombers with those cruise missiles and the launchers for those ballistic missiles, those are all located fairly deep inside Russia. So the whatever long-range strike capabilities are secured under this program, they probably... They won't have the range to have any meaningful impact there, even if, you know, we assume that there is no political constraints placed on how Ukraine can use them, i.e. if they are, you know, prohibited as per the terms of this from using them on targets inside of Russia, which is a distinct possibility. On the other hand, there are certain assets, well, I should also say, Russian fixed-wing aircraft, they are sorting from airfields and air bases inside Russia as well, for the most part, uh, with the exception of those in Crimea. So those are mostly out of reach as well. On the other hand, Russian S-300 and S-400, uh, those launches are obviously inside Ukraine. And although they aren't necessarily the primary air or missile threat, they are still a threat. This capability would enable Ukraine to potentially deal with at least some of them, depending on you know what munitions the Russians are using and the specific range of those, you know, 5v55 versus 48N6 for those uh um, more or less S-300, 400 interceptors that are they're using as um, bootleg ballistic missiles. And for the Shaheds, it is potentially also of use if they are launching those from somewhere in occupied Ukraine. Then this could potentially be useful again, depending on what the range of the uh, system that ends up being procured is. Okay, thank you very much. Looks like we have a question from Joseph. Yeah, I guess my, my question was just to sort of John, you know, John, it seems like there was a pretty sizable gap between Russia's recent strike on these civilian targets. Uh, there was recently one on Dnipro this week. So, of course, our condolences to Abbasu. Uh, and yeah, so John, I mean, do you have any comment about what's going on there? Why there was this gap? Uh, any information about, you know, this strike and, and, and sort of it to me, it seems like maybe the other side of the coin of the defense right? Like it, Russia's ability to attack um, is going to characterize how Ukraine has to defend. So uh, yeah, any thoughts, John? Right. So yeah, this is part of the the broader overall ongoing problem is that, you know, uh, one of Russia's asymmetric advantages is that they have a semi-functional defense industry. 
um, that can produce standoff munitions, albeit not very many. So the estimates that I've seen are that they can produce about 40 cruise missiles per month. Mostly, I think I want to say it's like 30-ish KH-101s per month and around 10 calibers per month-ish. They seem to be rate limited by the rate at which they can produce the turbofan engines for them. That's another tangent that I won't go on right now. But in any case, they can produce about 40 of those per month. The recent strike is a bit strange in that they launched, I believe, 23 cruise missiles, which is a strange number considering that in the intervening six weeks or so, they should have been able to produce about 60 cruise missiles. So um, unless there is some you know, dramatic dive in production that has not been publicized, they their previous practice was more or less to expend them as they were produced until they essentially a couple months ago when they basically hit near zero on their you know existing inventory at any given time so i would have expected either you know one strike of 40 cruise missiles per month or maybe one strike of 80 cruise missiles every two months but we got a strike after six weeks of just 20 which is a it, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the reasoning behind that is if they are preserving munitions there have been some comments made by uh, a spokesperson for the ukrainian air force that Russia is attempting to put a new cruise missile into production, the KH-50, which as far as we can tell seems to be a smaller, cheaper, shorter range, easier to manufacture derivative of the KH-101, that they are currently trying to put that into production sometime early this summer as their target with the goal of resuming a you know a concentrated strike campaign sometime this fall, like we saw um, you know uh, over the uh, fall and winter of last year. Okay, thank you very much, John. Looks like that's all of the questions that we have. I appreciate you helping walk us through some of this and looking at these systems. As you mentioned, some difficult decisions for the Ukrainians in terms of air defense and something we'll have to watch over the next weeks and months, especially as an offensive uh, continues. Joseph, maybe I can hand it back to you. Yeah, thanks, Charles. So the truth is you're pulling double duty, actually, Charles. You're going to be conducting an interview with our guest. Uh, so, uh, yeah, without further ado, we do have a guest uh, this week for the next segment. So Rosalie is a researcher, analyst, and a recent graduate from uh, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, uh, where she studied public health, national security, and public policy. Uh, Rosalie analyzes the threat of information manipulation and crises in her thesis, uh, Disasters, Disinformation, an Urgent Public Health, National Security Issue. Rosalie has been published in Rolling Stone Magazine and the academic journal Nature. Uh, she also runs the website Hope's Lines, which is great, a project that researches media manipulation and unethical efforts to influence the public. Uh, please also do follow her Twitter account. She does give updates on her research there and uh, just comments on other stuff, but it's, it's a great account. Please do follow it. So Jonathan and Charles are going to conduct uh, the interviews. Um, thank you, Joseph. Uh, um, uh, welcome, Rosalie. My question is this. Back in 2014, we saw... Kremlin disinformation widely disseminated by publications across the Western Hemisphere. Inaccurate, spurious claims made about Ukrainians were printed widely. These were often to cover up Russian crimes, such as the Kursk 53rd um, anti-aircraft uh, brigades downing of MH17. Since then, there has been a noticeable change. So my question is this. Is it your view that Kremlin disinformation operations are less effective than before 2022? That's a good question. So I 
I think that how we look at this question, some of the publications that we've seen on this, like, oh, Russia's losing the information war, et cetera, I think are a little premature. So one of the things that we've seen happen, uh, I think, in 2022 is that Russia has shifted its efforts. So it's a little bit funny that we're like, oh, yes, we won. But really, Russia's maybe not focusing on the West anymore. There have been policies put in place that limit the Kremlin's ability to reach a Western audience. So some countries have banned, you know, RT, uh, but they are adapting in some ways. In 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 the global South, uh, for example, we've seen, um, I, I think, more of a concerted effort. But what's most interesting about that is a recent Gallup poll showed that the there has been a really strong turn in attitudes and, and impressions of Russian leadership in in uh, South America in particular. And so even though the leaders of these countries may stay neutral or you know not participate in sanctions, it is the case that the public is is not fooled, which is of course encouraging. Okay, certainly seems like there's um there's been less opportunity for the Kremlin to use uh its its efforts to exterminate an entire an entire nation of people in Ukraine to use it to its advantage as it did back in twenty fourteen. There seems to be, first of all, a less receptive audience. And perhaps the answer to this is quite obvious because this war is such this most recent invasion, the attempt to occupy the entirety of Ukraine, the stated in intention to occupy to occupy the Baltic nations and Eastern Europe, this is so outrageous to so many people that this is perhaps the reason why there, there has been such a galvanization of the Western world, particularly since the 24th of February 2022. And this has left um, this has left the Kremlin with fewer options in terms of uh, in terms of narratives. Um, w would you agree? Yeah, I think that you know when the things that Russia is doing in Ukraine, it, you know, people who live next door to Ukraine can see that, and I think that it has turned you know even we we've heard cases of people who were pro Kremlin say uh, change their mind because they've seen what Russia is doing. So I think that the attitude that shifted away, I think that people are better informed. You know, one of the things that um, the United States did was, you know, getting ahead of Russia, something we've never done before, uh, coming out and saying, you know, Russia is going to invade, you know, they may use, you know, a false flag, etc. People had not, we, we had not done that before. And I think adjusting our approach has put Russia on on the back foot a bit in that way. But we also have a lot more people researching this, so finding it, calling it out. And, and the public is better educated about it now. It, no, nothing's perfect, but I think people are aware, uh, more aware of this, and this has made it harder for them to get traction. It, it certainly feels like the, 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 the Moscovy State 2022 fears informed people just like the 
the the, the regime uh, of the USSR back in uh, 37 years ago this week in 1986. Thank you, Rosalie. Charles, I believe you've got the next question to our wonderful guest. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. And thank you very much, Rosalie, for being here. You mentioned this false flag and, and getting ahead of things. And I know that a lot of your your research is in biological weapons and this intersection between uh, public health and national security. You know, Russia talks repeatedly about seaburn, so chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear topics in their misinformation. Everything from Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, dirty bombs, biolabs, even depleted uranium rounds. What are the trends that you see? What are the main trends or themes that you see in their disinformation campaigns around seaburn topics? And is it effective? The, the way that Russia uses you know, the discussion of nuclear weapons or biological weapons, I think is in this in the context of its invasion of Ukraine, is that it has been used to scare people, uh, particularly in countries that may be supporting Ukraine, uh, and to deter them from supporting Ukraine. I don't know if it's been effective or not, but I think that it is a tactic that we see. The discussion or just invoking the fact that Russia has them and could use them. I mean, it is a serious weapon that is, you know, capable of, of damage, unlike weapons, unlike some of the weapons we've seen thus far, although they're also considerable. And I think this is how they control the conversation we're talking about whether or not we should be giving weapons to Ukraine uh, because of nuclear, the threat of nuclear. We're not talking about the war crimes that have been documented by the ICC. We're not talking about what else we could be doing to deter Russia from what it's doing. So if I understand you correctly, this is, you know, by talking about this, they're able to deflect from other more damaging topics to them is is that correct i think that is one potential um it, it, it's a use of like this type of discussion it's one way it can serve them but i think another one that that i worry about is by raising the potential threat and making people fear for their lives it's it's potentially leading them not to want to support ukraine uh, I think that's a potential, um, that's a threat that from this particular like line of discussion that, that concerns me. And, and I, I know that, you know, we were talking once earlier about <laughs> how these are targeted, not only the messages, but then they have target audience groups. Is it the same with biological nuclear threats? Do they have very specific national and demographic target segments that that they are really trying to aim these at so i I think maybe a a better not not a better way to discuss it but uh kind of to set up the framework to understand why um the cbr on threats and the disinformation related to it why it's such a big problem now and that can then lead into the different audiences that get targeted and who's using it how so it's particularly dangerous today as it hasn't been in the past because of the 
digital platforms and and the pace at which claims are spreading and and the rate at which they can then affect people. The a major difference today that we haven't had in the past is that non-state actors are able to use this disinformation. So in the past, we're talking about state actors who had access to resources and things like that. But now with social media, we're seeing a lot of violent non-state actors. So, you know, political operatives, extremist groups, terrorist groups, organized crime. All of these groups can use CBRN crises or even like the impression of a threat um, and they can use it to do a number of things. One of the biggest things that they can do is they jeopardize the trust and credibility of institutions. So, you know, when we look at what happened during COVID and, you know, unsubstantiated claims um, and speculation that we saw from, you know, leaders in the U.S., influencers, well, this can really normalize the use or the idea of using biological weapons. And this is something that we don't. And sowing mistrust in institutions can be extremely dangerous. So, you know, COVID could have been much worse. And if in the future we have a more lethal virus, the erosion of trust in these institutions can be leveraged against us by a bad actor that is prepared for it. And that's something I worry about. Another use that we see is um, people use it to incite fear um, and, and hatred, and it kind of works as a vehicle to radicalize. For example, we saw Al-Qaeda they spread conspiracy theories that would assert, you know, that the virus is is a soldier of Allah and that it would punish unbelievers and enemies of Islam. We saw far-right extremists and, and white supremacists use it to kind of galvanize people who believe the government was going to take their rights. And a third thing that it can do is that there can be a, a significant financial incentive uh, which is one that I think a lot of people don't don't think about. We saw a lot of counterfeit PPE scams, fake cures. ISO had a website that sold fraudulent uh, PPE. But we also saw groups like anti-vaxxers just have an absolutely banner year. You know, just their revenue was just millions and millions of dollars they were raking in. And they were doing it by scaring people of this threat. And so these are things that can happen in the future when we see a CBRN threat. People can use it to monetize and for personal gain. Thank you very much, Rosalie. Um, maybe I think Jonathan has the next question. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Rosalie. I want to ask you about um, Twitter's removing of the tag state-affiliated media. The removing of this label from individuals in particular, who are known for carrying out either paid work for the Kremlin or have done so in the past or advocate for Moscow's policies, such as justifying its invasion of Ukraine in 2014, justifying its invasion of its full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year, and um, using Moscow talking points on social media platforms like Twitter. What impact do you think this has on Ukraine's allies and the information space generally? So in terms of the the impact on uh, Ukraine's allies, I don't know that this will much affect them. I think 
Ukraine's allies have a very good handle on what's going on. They know uh, the you know false Kremlin claims that we hear over and over. I don't think that's going to affect that group. What I'm more concerned about, and that would be more likely, is that people who are, um, perhaps they support countries sending aid to Ukraine, but they're unfamiliar with the situation. You know, people are busy and they're, you know, generally concerned with their day to day. So people like that won't know if the claims that they're hearing are true. And the repetition that we can see online from both state and non-state actors is particular con- concern because we know that repeat exposure um, affects people even when they know what is the when they know the truth that that's of most concern the the, the restrictions that state affiliated accounts had in the past were pretty important and this is something that could potentially affect how the the ultimate impact that that these efforts have. So RT's account, for example, was not, it didn't turn up in searches. It wasn't being recommended to people until it looks like sometime in late March. Um, The DFR lab, they published, you know, a report that showed that followers um, of the RT Twitter account, uh, they started rising pretty considerably um, at the end of March. So as these accounts gain more followers, right, they're finding new people who may not know what's going on and won't know how to vet the claims. But the influence that they have, the more followers they have, the easier it is for them to manipulate the platform. Uh, And this is one of the more dangerous aspects of what is happening. And this also applies to the Chinese state, which has also had its restrictions lifted when they're able to manipulate the platform as a whole rather than individuals they can affect things like reporting um it can be used to spread conspiracy theories bot networks can be used uh, to manipulate the platform too a lot of people worry with or they misunderstand how bots work it's not that they are convincing people with their you know very um computer-like behavior it's bots in they speak to the platform and its algorithm that's what they do and they're much more effective that way and they can manipulate these trends and they can help boost um the message that these these state affiliated accounts have this could be used at a time that when there's a crisis is always my concern and I think the cons- like in the future, the way that this could change the information space, it could potentially um, make things harder for Ukraine. But I think it's even bigger than that. It's this is a problem that countries, their elected officials, should be taking really seriously. The potential threats here, you know, we saw. Um, I mean, organized crime has effectively used uh, online platforms during crisis to kind of legitimize themselves in place of a government and and all of these things and i think you know russia is going to use every resource it has uh so yes i i worry about it i think that this is something that is definitely definitely a negative and i, I guess we'll just see we'll to see what happens i seriously one of the reasons one of the reasons i wanted to ask you this is i guess because one of the criticisms of social media is that in it can make people 
perhaps due to a person's confirmation bias, naturally gravitate towards opinions that they want to hear, whether this information is factually correct or wrong, whether this information is delivered um, or by its nature is hyperbolic. And yet inaccurate opinions such as these tend to attract people who want to hear them. So when I hear you describe the effect of bot networks on platforms like Twitter, it makes me think, well, with the removal of the state-affiliated media tag, this removes one of the one of the uh, the things that people can actually use to to be informed about what they're reading or what they're listening to, and therefore this elevates the status of bad actors or potential bad actors to it puts them on the same level as everybody else, and it's saying this is just another voice in this sea of opinions. Uh, and there's not nothing actually wrong about this voice as far as Twitter is concerned because it's neutral. It's removed the tag. Whereas before, it, it, it explicitly would state this person is affiliated with the state media of a country which is currently engaged in a genocidal invasion and attempted occupation of an entire nation in Europe in 2023. So it seems to me that despite the Kremlin having a reduced potency in its ability to affect the West. There is something within this removal of these labels of state-affiliated media, which is inherently dangerous and interweaves, unfortunately, with the efforts of bad actors who seek to influence the West in 2023. Yeah, I would definitely agree with all that. It the fact that there are a lot of state-affiliated individuals who are not obviously state-affiliated. The only way that the average person may know is because of that label. The fact that they are able to conceal that, they are able to conceal that they may be financially benefiting. I mean, just some of them are working as a, as a foreign agent. And the fact that that this won't be disclosed is, yeah, it is a very concerning thing. The way in which this all came up, uh, there was another problematic ask here, and it was the labeling, of course, of NPR, and it was the uh, equating state funding, which NPR had like 1% state funding, so it wasn't really that significant, but really equating state funding of any kind with what Russia and China and Iran, for example, do. These are not the same. It's really not the funding that that is important. And that sort of muddied the waters a bit too. Then I see I have seen people asking, like, well, you know, how how is NPR different? One <laughs> you know, there there's uh, the double firewall, which is there's independence, there's editorial independence. You know, and there's an independent board. These are not things that exist in RT, for example. Um, they really intentionally seek out unexperienced journalists that they can shape who won't really know if what they're asking is kind of a norm or not. And then, of course, RT is the 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 chief editor of it, thinks of it as part of the defense of, of Russia. And that's certainly, you know, not not how I would say we regard um, NPR. 
this situation is just it there's so many different facets of this that are worrisome it really is baffling to me that, that this has happened i there's not much more I could say than that. I, I am truly disturbed by it. Mm, I, I, I agree. Thank you, Rosalie. Charles, over to you. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, Rosalie, I saw on your Twitter feeds a few days ago some graphics, some data that you had gone through and, and analyzed in terms of getting Twitter getting more court orders and government requests. We've put that graph in the nest. Could you just sort of walk me through what what this means, what is the trend that we're seeing and, and why? There are more government requests than before. So since the the transition of ownership. Now, a good percentage of them are coming from Germany. I think that that doesn't concern me so much. I think that has to do with the German laws against hate speech. Germany, for obvious reasons, takes that very seriously. I think that's probably what those requests are related to. What I get more concerned about is when I see India having a lot um, and also seeing that the compliance with these requests is higher. So what's about 50% before, now it's 80%. Well, we know in India um, that removing maybe not factually inaccurate, but information that the government in control does not want online um, those are the kinds of things that they'll ask to have removed. And this is a, a really concerning thing, not necessarily with regard to India, although that's a situation that I think a lot of people are watching with great concern. Uh, an even more complicated and potentially dangerous situation is China and its use of these platforms the the fact that Elon Musk has a significant financial stake here that that really hinges um, on China and I think it's it, it, this is a situation that I I think yeah should be taken you know just really seriously maybe just a follow up to that and and I I don't know if if this is uh, if you if if you don't have the information, that's fine. I'm just sort of curious because we're talking here about one platform and we're talking about the reach of, of Twitter. How does it look on, on other platforms? Uh, if you do any research on that on Facebook or Telegram or Weibo or any of the others? Sure. So I don't know, you know, percentages. I, I can't tell you. I know that, you know, Facebook does get those requests and I know that Facebook does receive things like tips and then take down networks that are inauthentic and they've taken down domestic ones that were more like political operations within the U.S., you know, and they take down ones that are by or or from nation states. But um, I I couldn't say what the percentages are. I wouldn't expect a change because there hasn't been a policy change or change in, in ownership. Obviously, the concern with the the platforms all vary in, in terms of what we are concerned about. So TikTok, for example, the concern is that, you know, the the government can access the data within China. And I think there has there's been an instance of that where they were accessing data for journalists, I believe. But I, I can I, I wouldn't be 100 percent on that. But, yeah, I think that how platforms are handling requests from governments is something that the public 
And people who are concerned about their ability to express their thoughts and to to challenge powerful people who are doing not great things, I think if that's something that you like being able to do, then you should be very concerned about how these platforms are handling these. And the fact that there are no laws really for transparency, right? So right now they're telling us we're, we're basically at their mercy. It cannot stay this way. It, the the threat here is um, it, it's really difficult to communicate it. And it's, I mean, really, truly, they could be cooperating with, you know, if India sends a bunch of requests and and would like specific information taken down, uh, there's not a lot we anybody can say or, or do about that. Uh, thank you very much. Maybe bringing it back to, to Russia and to Ukraine. Recently, I've been speaking with some people who are friends of mine and so on who are informed about the situation in ukraine i would say that you know if i go back a year ago or even six months ago i think they had a very different perception they've now understood things a bit better about the military situation about the political situation in ukraine and they have a much clearer perspective on how ukraine is doing and what they're fighting for and, and all of this but there's still the question came to me was, you know, why are we still treating Russia as a quote unquote big global power? Their perception of the media was is that people are still very afraid of Russia. And and I'm just kind of asking for some advice here. What what do I say to those people when they they looking at the situation, they're saying, Why is everybody so afraid of them? We've seen their their performance in the, on the battlefield in Ukraine and their diplomatic isolations. What are we scared of now? What can I say to them? So I just want to preface this with, you know, um, obviously my expertise is, is not in international relations or Russia or Ukraine specifically, although, you know, I, of course, I'm familiar with them. What I think is contributing to this and something that should get more attention is strategic corruption. I think it's more powerful than we realize an entire country can support Ukraine, as we're seeing in South America. And if the Kremlin has successfully influenced a handful of select people, it really may not matter what that country wants. And I think much as Russia learned to gain the free press to serve its aims, they have also learned how to exploit uh, democracies. And this is a key area of weakness that we need to address. You know, the financial corruption is not my area of expertise, although I would really love to hear what Ben has to say about it. But legislation in, in this area is broadly popular. And we've seen a lot of efforts in Ukraine as they are progressing from uh, kind of the things in the Soviet era, uh, corruption was really a feature of, of the Soviet communist regime. And so as Ukraine has progressed out of it, there's been a lot of initiatives and in the country that are really interesting. And I think, hmm, I would really like to see that in the United States. We, we don't have that. They have, you know, databases for certain elected officials and all of this information that has to be declared. And I think these are things that 
if we had them more broadly, it'd be much harder for the Kremlin to uh, strategically influence very powerful people. Thank you very much, Rosalie. I saw that perhaps Vasil had a question. Vasil, did you have a question for Rosalie? Yes, it's maybe something not on the question I have want to add about if it's interesting about anti-corruption institutes in Ukraine and uh, situation with corruption in Ukraine, I can add something if it's interesting. Yes, please. I I would really like people to hear about the anti-corruption efforts in Ukraine. I think they're fantastic. Uh, Yeah, I want to say that uh, we have even uh, now a problem with corruption, but uh, uh, we have, I think, a very, very big success in such fights uh, for, I think, maybe, uh, maybe eight years. First, the first step was created: National Anti-Corruption Bureau. It is uh, an investigating, uh, investigating office for anti-corruption. Also, it was created National Anti-Corruption Agency, uh, which is regulating and also controlling uh, anti-corruption crime. It's something like uh, declarations, uh, it's something transparency, it's something about that. And uh, in 2090, uh, it was uh, created uh, anti-corruption court and uh, it is a finalization of anti-corruption reform when uh, this ah, also we have anti-corruption prosecutor office and uh, this for uh, anti-corruption institutes uh, I think it's their work is good and uh, they have much success uh, fighting against corruption. I think maybe every week I hear about uh, some sentences, anti-corruption court, and also we hear about uh, work, and it is sentences not about uh, about uh, such some not very uh, important men and uh, authorities. It's about uh, judges. It's about uh, ministers. It's about um, other very important and very uh, not very important authorities and powers. Uh, and I think we have very good steps in such way. But also, I want to say that we have uh, problems even now, and uh, we understand that. And every day. I think we are going in the right way against corruption. Thank you very much, Vasil. And thank you very much, Rosalie. Uh, we're coming close to the top of the hour. Um, Rosalie, is there anything we've missed uh, today that you'd like to touch upon before we end this segment? Just sort of an observation that I think you guys might find interesting, and that's sort of the discussion of the counteroffensive and you know what people are thinking about it so the um the center for strategic communications and information security in ukraine 
uh, found a campaign using advertising to reach Ukrainians. And it was about the counteroffensive in many cases, but also just basically like trying to get that message out that Ukraine can't win. Now, because they detected it, they were able to block, you know, at least some of it. But I found that interesting that that campaign happened and about, let's see, maybe not even two, three days ago, there was a poll that came out of the Levada Center in Russia. Now, polling from Russia, as everybody knows, is highly suspect. However, the Levada Center, I think, is unique in that I think it may be the most um, reflective of, of whatever the true opinion is. People, um, if there are negative sentiments about something that perhaps the Kremlin would not like to see it in a poll, it, it, still, it still appears at the Levada Center. And one of the things they reported is that nearly two-thirds Russians reported concern about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. So that's your Russians in Russia, they're worried about it. An even greater percentage is concerned, uh, it was like over 70%, about the supply of weapons to Ukraine from other countries. So they're, they're worried. Um, and uh, I think that this, this campaign that we see targeting Ukraine is probably not... Um, singular. I'm sure there are other efforts, and I think it's something we should keep in mind as we do see discussion of the counter-offensive um, online. Thank you very much, yeah, and uh, we will certainly be in touch to see how the information space and, and how Russian propaganda and talking points change as the counter-offensive starts and, and, um, and moves forward. Thank you very, very much uh, for joining us today. And from me and Jonathan, thank you. Clearly, this war is, it goes on every day. Just while we've been talking today, large explosions in Ukraine as uh, apparently some kind of um, ammunition depot has been hit. So let us not forget that even though we do not see from the military side a, a lot of news to report each week, uh, the war is certainly very, very intense. Thank you, Rosalie. Back to you, Joseph. Thank you, Charles. Thanks, everyone, for uh, listening to Tokyo Weekly. We do this broadcast every Sunday at 1800 UTC, so uh, please do join us every week. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, if you're unable to join us, though, a recording of this broadcast and all of our content is available on both our Spotify and Apple podcast accounts. Just search Tochmi, uh, and you'll be able to find us there. So please do give those a follow. We appreciate that. We would also recommend Ben's recent interview with uh, Andras Tassifra. He's a uh, a person who studies the internal political dynamics of Russia. I think uh, Ben did a great interview with them. So do uh, head on down there and check the, check this uh, past broadcasts out or uh, some of our interviews. So they're all, I think they're great. Please do give the main account a follow for uh, updates and future content, things like that. Uh, we do our best to post from the main account when we can. If you do have any feedback for us, you can message the main account or tweet at us. Uh, we'll do our best to uh, address that. And uh, thanks again to our live listeners, to our podcast listeners, to our guests, to our panelists uh, for joining us this week. Uh, see everyone next time, and uh, Slava Ukraini. Goyim Slava.